1: everyone. And thank you for listening to the Future Futurati podcast. Today we are interviewing Luca Delana, who is an independent researcher focusing on the future of management, ergodicity, behavioral economics, and a variety of other fascinating fields. Luca, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Why don't you tell us a little bit about the problems that you're focused on and what brought you to working on that particular set of problems?
2: Yeah. So the overarching problems I'm, so, I'm focusing on is uh, adaptive systems. And it's basically the idea that a lot of uh, what's around us uh, in management, in healthcare, everything, is about uh, the most important part is about how the systems adapt. So, for example, if you are a policymaker, it's not really important just what the policy you're writing make, does, but it's how the population then adapts uh, to the policy and to its results. I just published a book which is called The Teams Adaptive Systems. And that's basically about a paradigm of management which focuses on the idea that what really matters as a manager are not only the actions you take and their direct effect, but how your team will adapt to it. And uh, this has a lot of applications in healthcare, because also our bodies. Uh, adaptive systems for example in education uh, because for example in education it would be that not only you try to teach uh, some notions but you also think about how the students will adapt to those notions and how they will uh, act in practice and yeah it has uh, applications to how we are managing the pandemic and so on and so forth.
1: That's fascinating. One of, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, is what unites all the different fields you write on. Is it fair to say that it's mostly this concept of adaptive systems? Yes, that's, that's the topic uh, that links
2: everything I do. And then I decline it in specific arguments. So, for example, I recently published a book on ergodicity, which is an extremely important concept uh, in economics and behavioral uh, sciences that I just hope that more people get to know about.
1: Oh yeah. We're going to talk about ergodicity. Um, could you, yeah. b- before we get to that, could you speak a little bit about how you conceptualize adaptive systems and how you go about studying them? Because it's, it's a very thorny epistemological problem, right? You can't just hold one variable constant change or, or hold everything constant change one variable and see what happens as is the standard scientific method. You're studying something with many interrelated parts that change over time in response to your tinkering. So how do you study something like that? What are the methods that you bring to that issue?
2: Yeah. So these are exactly like some of the big problems that uh, are facing the field. And there are some, there there is a set of rules about like how things work that we we must always take into account. So one is that uh, it's extremely important observation. So like what happens in practice, you cannot just uh, uh, think how a system with many, many parts will adapt. Another one is like that you need to consider like some principle, for example, uh, Nassim Taleb's antifragility. It's about how systems uh, react. Uh, Then there are a few other principles that uh, apply from, uh, from mechanics about, for example, how damage propagates. And then it's mostly about the idea that you need to know that you can only like predict or think about how things will work up to a certain time, up to a certain extent. And so you need to design some process of experimentation. So, for example, if you're designing a policy, one of the best approach is to actually try it in the small and see how it works and then only generalize what works instead of generalizing what makes sense which is usually, um, a mistake that we make and that then leads to, uh, unintended
1: consequences. Absolutely.
0: So, so during this time of radical change, um, some of the skills that people have to have are they have to have a lot of, uh, resilience. They have to have a lot of adaptability and flexibility. And, uh, and a lot of people don't have that. They don't have the ability to shift on a dime and move from one system to another. so when when you're talking about uh, adaptive systems, you're talking about from the system side, and the people don't have to change so much or only a little bit. Is that correct?
2: Well, yes, there are like a lot of parts in the system that can change. and uh, for example, in a company, you can change some of the processes, you can change some of the way the company is organized, but you can also change uh, how the people, uh, uh, the behavior of the people, or like the procedures of the people, or what the people value, what are their priorities. And just to give you an example, I have this, this, um, this idea that if you consider a person as an identity, and then you give them a piece of feedback. Uh, for example, someone comes to me and says, Luca, you're a terrible presenter and the piece of feedback is directed at me, and I consider myself as an identity, then I will not change. I will reject the piece of feedback. But conversely, if I consider myself as a container of mental patterns, and then I get the feedback and I direct it to one of those mental patterns, for example, uh, I talk too fast, uh, then that becomes a piece of feedback that can break one of those single mental patterns and can make me adapt in response to something that broke down. And then I become stronger or fitter, which means that I can perform better or I can exhibit behaviors which are more valuable uh, for others. And for example, the process that I just described is is at the base uh, of uh, Nassim Taleb's antifragile. Something breaks, the system reacts, and becomes stronger. And then, of course, So you need to have something that breaks. And if it's just myself, the whole identity, I break down, I have a mental breakdown, I quit my job, everything that doesn't work. So you need to to be able to to consider uh, people as made of multiple parts, organizations as made of multiple units, uh, product strategies as made of multiple products, and so on and so forth, so that you can have individual parts that break and so the system can adapt. Whereas you get in some other contexts, you get companies which are too big, and they focus too much on not breaking down, on surviving as they are, and the result is that because nothing breaks down, nothing adapts. And that works in the short term, but in the long term you have a behemoth that is not uh, fit to, to his environment anymore, and at some point it leads to his demise.
1: So is that mostly just a function of the size of the company? Because it's it's not as though there aren't large companies that innovate, although I grant that it is, it's more difficult. The communication channels are, are far more clogged with signals going up and down. So do you think it's mostly just a matter of growing large and the diseconomies of scale that come with that? And what can bigger companies do or companies that are in the process of becoming big do to try to structure themselves such that this is less of a problem and that something can break in a way that's adaptive, not maladaptive?
2: Well, in theory, you can uh, break yourself down into, um, I call it, even if it's not the correct technical term, into a fractal-like structure. So you have, for example, different departments, different teams, uh, uh, teams made of different people and so on. The products, you break them down down into features, value propositions, whatnot. And the clients, you break them down, the market, you break them down into segments and so on. And in this way, you manage, even if you have a large company, it is still made inside of it of smaller components that can break down independently and they can, uh, that can adapt. So that that's in theory uh, the optimal uh, strategy. Then I'm saying in theory, because there, there are some... Uh, intrinsic limitations in that as in uh, at some point there is uh, always some level of compression some level of structuring that cannot uh, um that cannot be avoided too much and then you begin also having problems of um uh, skin in the game for example so in in his book Taleb talks about skin in the game not only as an incentive but also as a, as a process for, for feedback, for, as filtering. So, for example, you have the people who take decisions that, take, that put risks in the system or they take bad decisions that somehow get filtered out of the system. And that's usually something that you want to have. But in a big, large company, you, you necessarily have some interdependencies that makes it difficult for, for it to happen. For example, you can have a person which is overseeing multiple departments, or that has a function that works um, across departments, and then it's very hard for it. Like for example, if it has bad performance in one department, uh, like you cannot just remove that, and then you create problems across the other departments. So that's that's one problem. Uh, other problems is that in a large company, you get some feedback external which is not granular. For example, shareholders' pressures, uh, and so on and so forth. So there are some intrinsic limits to how much you can fractalize a company.
1: That's very interesting. So have you gone through the process of consulting with large companies to have them adopt this fractal structure throughout, and, and what does that look like?
2: Yeah, so I didn't uh, still manage to, uh, to do it at a full level. Uh, I managed to do it at, like uh, partially. So for example, ideas such as a, a company that has a, a great idea for a new product. If it tries to develop internally, there are some limitations to how the product can be developed. So one is simply because if a team, an innovation team is fully within a company, it will still have like some pressures and some interdependencies. But also because then uh, the metrics that they use, the metrics that the head company uses to, to decide how to allocate funds, usually maybe companies, they have a policy that like some investments, they have they need to bring a return within, for example, two years. And maybe instead you have an internal team that is developing something very new, very exciting, but maybe we'll not see any returns before seven years. So usually what one of the solutions is that you spin it off. So and that's, for example, you spin it off, so, that you, it gets uh, uh, some independence, uh, it can get feedback which is independent from the feedback to the main company, and, uh, and it can adapt and it iterate much faster.
0: Yeah. So, so Luca, you're, uh, you're talking to us from Turin, Italy today. And um, being on the European side of the, the ocean, do you notice that, that- uh, the way companies operate there are different than in North America and in Asia? And how do your systems respond to the uh, kind of the geographical differences in the companies,
1: or the cultural differences too? Yeah. yeah,
0: the cultural differences. Yeah.
2: Yes, there is a lot of variance, even not not only between continents, which of course there is, but also within countries. Uh, for, for example, I've been working uh, uh, both in Italy and in Germany for a few years, mm-hmm. and. Company cultures tend to be very different in the level of independence that they give to employees uh, to how decisions are taken, at which level decisions tend to be taken, um, how long are ideas tested, how long they are expected to bring results, and so on and so forth. Uh, So usually I try to to use uh, an approach which focuses very much on principles. So one of those principles would be that you need to try to uh, break down uh, structures, organizations, initiatives and so on into components that feedback can uh, hurt and adapt uh, separately. Uh, Another another idea is that you you strive to have the decisions taken at the lowest competent level rather than at the highest competent level. And that's a principle, for example, that I use, that I try to use everywhere. But then of course, the different countries, they tend to uh, interpret it differently. So for example, if you go to a country, to a company in Italy and you say decisions need to be taken at the lowest competent level, and you say the same thing uh, in the US, or do you say the same thing in Germany, then you get a different results. But it's not so much of a problem that, meaning that in either case, you get uh, an improvement and you get a step in the right direction. And uh, yes.
1: Okay. So (laughs) I'm curious as to how you maintain coherence in a company while adopting this strategy. So I, I buy that it makes sense to, in one way or another, import market dynamics into the company. So you want smaller components, you want independent feedback. Ideally, you want iteration happening on multiple levels and in multiple different tranches of the company how do you maintain a shared vision then is that just sort of the job of the CEO or is there a way to kind of enact these policies and this uh, fractalizing while also having everyone pointed in the same direction and pursuing the same sets of goals, the same overarching goals?
2: Well, this is, this is very, uh, industry dependent. Uh, you have some, uh, some industries in which, uh, uh, you can be much more flexible and you have other industries in which instead uh, you must follow um, a strategy, a vision, um, compromises, priorities, which are decided uh, uh, only at the top and cannot be changed or that are subject to basic boundaries. But in that case, it's it's a job of the very top or of the management to make clear exactly what are the boundaries, what uh, cannot be compromised, what are the priorities, and uh, what instead uh, is more flexible. And uh, one of the things, for example, that is extremely important is that the top management, so ideally the CEO and, and the top suit, they not only are extremely clear on what are the priorities, What what is the vision of the company, and so on and so forth. But also that they take personal, um, clear, visible actions, costly actions, so that uh, uh, they demonstrate that this is not just management speak, but it's actually what uh, the company wants.
1: Um, do, do you have an example of that?
2: Yes. So um, for example, I come from a background uh, of um, operational safety. So during my first job, we were basically going to companies and telling them and training their management on how to make their operations, usually manufacturing, safer. And so what would happen is that usually the CEO, the plant manager, one day uh, he says that uh, safety is a big priority of the company and uh, all employees have to wear the helmet while at work, for example. And then what happens is that one month later, Uh, The operations manager comes and says, we have this rush order and we must uh, reach this target production by the end of the month, for example. And then what happens is that at this point, the employee has two competing priorities, production and safety. And if he needs to make a decision, he will usually choose um, the last one or the most recent um, or the one coming from his most direct boss, because it's the one that he has the closest feedback from and uh, also that he believes has the um, highest chance of uh, affecting his career. And this is a problem. So instead, what you want to have is uh, a um, a CEO of a member of the top management that regularly comes visiting the plant So, of course, like if you have a large company, it cannot be the CEO always visiting, but then it's the highest um, uh, position in the geography. So, for example, the plant manager. And every time that it comes on the workflow, it always takes the time to put the helmet on, for example. And it performs some safety audits. And that's uh, and usually I set targets for that which are very aggressive. So, for example, I say the CEO must do that at least once per month. And usually the answer I get is like, oh, the CEO doesn't have the time. It has to visit clients, uh, suppliers, talk to the press, and so on and so forth. And what I'm saying is that exactly because the CEO doesn't have time, that that sends a very costly signal. And it sends the, the signal that if the CEO doesn't compromise on that, then no one else can and should. So that's an example of uh, visible costly action. Another one could be... Um, If there is a priority, for example, we say that, um, uh, I don't know, customer satisfaction is the priority of the company, then the manager must also, for example, allow refunds from the customers, even if they are expensive uh, to the company, because doing otherwise would be sending a signal that customer satisfaction is not the highest priority, but it's a priority subordinate to the bottom line which might or might not be important, but, uh, or or might or might not be what the company wants, but the company must be very clear on the, not only on what the priorities are, but the order of those priorities, and then take decisions based on this order so that the priorities don't get compromised uh, as they trickle down the hierarchy. And then the lowest levels, they, even if they are given autonomy, even if they are given the ability to adapt, They will still adapt in a direction that makes sense for the company and that is coherent.
1: That is very compelling. I wonder, and the answer to this question might be no, have you looked at successful companies in the modern era or let's say the previous century and examined them for the extent to which they adhere to these principles? So it's pretty easy to look at Amazon and just say, Jeff Bezos is a genius and he's the greatest businessman of the 20th century. All of which may be true, but have you looked at Amazon's structure and compared it to other companies, other retail companies, and looked for whether or not there's a lot of independence in the modules or whether or not the managers of the different divisions send these costly signals? Have you gone hunting for empirical signs of what you're describing theoretically?
2: Yes. So I don't have uh, uh, any direct experience with Amazon. But I do have experience with a lot of companies, especially in um, in uh, manufacturing, in the automotive and in the chemical field, which uh, I've been uh, working with uh, either consulting myself or together with other consulting companies. And uh, I've probably got to see more than uh, uh, 150 uh, companies and different plants. So. Even within the same company, you can see, like, for example, some plants are doing things differently than the other plants. And so that provides you some, uh, some, good, uh, um, some good idea of what works and what doesn't. And so you see that there are principles that always work. You see that there are principles that only make sense but do not work in theory. And there are some principles which works only in sets. So that principle alone doesn't do much. Second principle alone doesn't do much, but if you apply them together, they form a coherent and set that actually works. So what happens in, re- in reality is that you see that there is um, there are a few dos that would apply to all companies, and there are a few don'ts that are always detrimental and then you can see between that there are a few approaches, a few classes of approach and they all work, or work to some extent. They have some pros and some cons. And yes, so to answer more precisely your your, your question, I've seen that um, one of the criteria that is probably the best predictor of whether there is what I call operational excellence is that uh, is whether is how much uh, the management spends on the field uh, where the work takes place. So how much uh, the CEO goes down into the plant or if it's not a manufacturing company, how, how often it goes uh, uh, in the office or wherever the work takes place and how it trickles down. Uh, another principle is uh, about uh, how fast our feedback loops So for example, you have companies which have very slow feedback loops, uh, in which managers, they only give feedback uh, once or twice per year. And the rest of the time, they don't really or they collect feedback, but they don't say it. Or they say it, but then they forget about it. And they don't verify whether it's implemented, and so on and so forth. And so you see that how fast and tight feedback loops are are extremely important. Then how companies actually decline it, how they put it in action, it varies a lot between companies and you can have different solutions uh, that all work yeah,
0: yeah there's a, there's a big difference between trying to implement a system from one company to the to the other based on the personalities of people that are involved and and certainly kind of the oh the character traits of people in North America are different than in Europe and uh, and how um, kind of how independent-minded people are and how much they're willing to take risks and try things that uh, are on the edges. So the uh, the to the extent that one system is replicatable from one company to the next is largely dependent on the personalities of those involved. Uh, I'm sure you're running into that all the time. How do you go about compensating for that?
2: Well, yes, uh it's extremely important to see the personalities, both like the personality of the company. So like what's already the culture that's already in place and both the personality of like independent uh, executives or local managers. And uh, that's something that, can, that must be taken into account. So for example, personally, what I, um, the way I work is that I have uh, true uh, requisites to say um, I will work with this company and I actually put uh, my results on the line, which is one, that first I get to interview all the members of the top management, either the top management at the company if I'm working with a food company, or either the top management at a certain office or at a certain plant if I'm working only with this local set. And then the second thing is that I decide or we agree on some, like, what are the set of other priorities that I was talking about beforehand with uh, the local top manager. And then when I began working and training or communicating with, like, uh, the local people, beforehand, the the top manager actually comes and sets uh, the expectations and talks about what these priorities are and shows some commitment. And I'm doing that for two reasons. So the first one, like the interviews are very useful to understand what are the personalities. And so it gives me an idea of whether they are ready for some of those principles or some of those um, ideas or whether they're not. And in that case, uh, some other actions have to be taken or some other things have to be implemented. And the second thing is, unless I get the commitment of that Member of the top, uh, the top manager at the local place to actually say in front of everyone that these are the priorities. Then I already know that there's going to be a big roadblock. There's going to be a big bottleneck that will uh, affect um, the rollout, the change initiative, or or whatnot. So these are are two important things. And the second thing is that I I don't like. Uh, approaches which are based on systems like prepackaged systems so this is the approach this is the set of best practices this is the set of trainings and that's what we're going to do because uh, then if they're not adapted to the people and if the people don't fit into it then then it's not going to work and instead i try to work as much as possible with principles And then how those principles are declined, it's up to the people involved and to the companies involved.
1: Fantastic. So you have spent a lot of time thinking about how businesses are structured, working with specific businesses on the ground. And I wonder if you might comment on how you think business is going to change going into the future. So with the rise of the internet, many dynamics in business changed with the, you know, changes in monetary policy, for example, businesses are going to change the rise in artificial intelligence and automation. All of these things are going to redound throughout the business world. Do you have any just loose thoughts on how business might evolve going into the future? Do you think we'll see more mega companies like Amazon? Do you think that will gradually become less and less common? Uh, What are the dynamics at play?
2: Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. I think that uh, a few of the phenomenons will be that um, a lot of processes uh, will use software and that means that you have uh, uh, one additional gateway, uh, one additional channel to change or to force or to train how processes are made. So for example, um, I'm giving you an example before Uh, if you're working for a consulting company beforehand, the way that contracts are negotiated with the clients and then uh, approved and then planned and then submitted to legal and so on and so forth was largely there is a procedure written but then whether the people are doing it the salespeople, the consultants it's up to them in fact whereas the more there is software involved, the more some of those you can um, software can create some artificial bottlenecks such as the contract must be be uploaded so that before there is any authorization and so on and so forth. And that means that uh, there will be probably some kind of standardization. And once you have a standardization, then you have a lot of things which will happen. So one thing is that standardization might make... um, more possible to different companies to act as uh, modules. Uh, they can insert them themselves more granularly, or they can um, they can specialize on something, on some part if, um, specific aspect, or work together with other companies and fit as a module inside that company. That's one possibility. Another possibility is uh, that because it's standardized, then you have some mega companies that dominate this. We've seen it uh, uh, with Amazon, for example. First, it standardizes um, products, uh, uh, logistics, um, and everything else. And then it, it, it can begin offering more and more of the services itself, or it can see what are the parts which are the most profitable, and so on and so forth. And it has a lot of meta-information, so not only information about who are the clients, what are the suppliers, what are the prices, and so on, but it also has better information on where it can extract value, where it can produce value, and so on and so forth. So that's a counter-tendency that will uh, probably favor mega-companies. And I have no idea how those two tendencies will, uh, will balance each other. So this is one one aspect. Another aspect is that I find that I think it's interesting is the rise of um, robotics, and I'm talking about robotics not only, for example, uh, in manufacturing or in logistics. I'm thinking about uh, I don't know the drone that brings you the Amazon package, right. but I'm thinking about robotics also as automated automated call centers, um, automated uh, post employees. Uh, the fact that when you go to McDonald's, now you put the order on those screens and so on and so forth. Right. And I've seen that there are some countries that are reacting to this automation as it's a threat to workers. And they are reacting on, uh, uh, with enacting policies. Uh, they're talking about universal basic income and uh, these other kinds of things. And whereas uh, we might discuss whether they have merits or not and probably they have merits on some in some uh, applications. I think that one important thing that mo- many countries are not thinking is that if most work, most of the current jobs will be automated either by software or by hardware, then it becomes extremely important to be, for the countries to supply this hardware and software internally, because that's what's going to generate the revenue. And the independence to then enact uh, any uh, social scheme that you might think of. And that's something that some countries are thinking very well about it. And some other countries, I'm thinking especially Europe, are not much thinking about it.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying that there should be less of a division of labor in the development of the software, the hardware that enables automation because that is where the economic value will come from when they begin trying to implement universal basic income or something like that.
2: Yes, so in particular what I'm saying is that uh, you will countries will have to have the capabilities to build such software and hardware internally or they will find this themselves uh, um, in disadvantage and uh, I'm not, so finance is not particularly my field, but I can imagine that a country that, um, that doesn't have the capacity to produce uh, the main ingredients for economic output will find itself uh, at big disadvantage. And so I think that countries need to think much more about how they can keep being independent in a future in which there is a lot of automation, software and hardware, automation that leads to some degrees of centralization,
0: Very interesting. which might be
2: in yeah. other places.
0: So when it comes to organizational design, it, it always strikes me that um, how you measure success is the, uh, some of the key criteria to begin with. And... Um, And so that varies naturally from one industry to the next, I'm sure. But uh, how do you go about measuring success in the projects you take on?
2: Yes. So I make this difference between leading indicators and lagging indicators. So I make an example. Revenue is a lagging indicator because how many contracts you signed is something that happened in the past. So if a company in 2020 made uh, $10 billions of revenue, that's a lagging indicator that is telling me how the company performed in the past. Conversely, you have leading indicators which measure how the company will perform in the future. And that could be things as in quality of hiring, uh, um, training, um, how research and development is structured, um, how the relationships that uh, the company has with the clients and so on and so forth. And that's something that is more likely to be predictive of of the future, especially of the long-term future. Of course, you want to measure both because companies uh, live and die by lagging indicators. A company that doesn't have revenue or doesn't have profits, which are both lagging indicators, starves. Or even if it doesn't starve, Very soon you have external pressure that replace the the top management and so on and so forth. So it's not sustainable. But it's also very important that if you don't have the leading indicators that are promising, what happens is that the company will plateau. It will reach some level of short-term success, and then it will not grow in the future. So I'm always striving to include both leading and uh, lagging indicators. And then depending on the project at, at hand, uh, myself, I can target both either both leading and lagging like indicators, or I can focus exclusively on uh, leading indicators. So, yeah, that's that's basically the approach.
1: Okay. That's, that's very insightful. This conversation could go on for hours and hours, but I, I want to pivot to something that you recently published a book about, and that's ergodicity. So this is one of those things that has kind of burst onto a lot of people's radar. Uh, you see it on Twitter, you see experts emerging. Uh, Ole Peters has, has written several papers basically insinuating that the whole edifice of economics is built on a foundation that doesn't take this into account. So this is extremely timely and important. So could you start with just defining what ergodicity is, and then let's get into some of the specifics of it a little bit.
2: Yes. Uh, so I, give, I will give you the example that I use at the very beginning of the book. Uh, my cousin was a, was, is a skier. And uh, he, when he was a child, he began skiing at three years old, uh, extremely fast, extremely promising, uh, made it to the world championships for his uh, age bracket. And uh, he had a great professional career in front of him. And then he began having a series of injuries uh, at the knee, uh, at the ankle and so on. And basically, he had to end his professional career as a skier before he reached the 20 years old. And what you see is that those skiers that you see uh, in the world championship are not the fastest skiers, but they are the fastest skiers that manage to survive uh, and make it to the world championship. And then I make an example with numbers because we want to put quantities. Because if I'm saying that survival uh, is important, it's something very banal. Of course, survival is important. But... Uh, What I'm saying is that survival matters more than performance. And I make a numeric example to explain it. Um, So, for example, let's say that my my cousin participates to this championship, and this championship has 10 races. And my cousin has a 20% chance of winning each race, and a 20% chance of having an incident and breaking his leg. And then I ask the reader, what is the expected amount of uh, wins that my cousin will have in this uh, 10 races championship. And the naive answer is two races, because you're saying that, uh, he has 20% chance of winning a race, and there are 10, cha- 10 races in the championship, so 10, 20% times 10 makes two. But that is, that is the wrong answer. The right answer considers the fact that if my cousin breaks his leg in the first uh, race, he cannot participate to the next uh, races. And so breaking his leg doesn't only mean that he loses the current race, but he loses all future races. So my cousin only has 80% chances of participating to the second race. And then he only has 80 times 80, 64% chances of participating to the third race and so on and so forth. And if you make the computation, at the end, during the championship, he's only expected to win um, 0,71 races. And so the principle that you can extract out of this is that in the short-term losses, they only affect short-term performance. So in the short-term, my cousin breaking his leg only means that he lost this race. But in the long-term, these consequences, these losses, means that there won't be any future gain. So you have these phantom consequences. So breaking his leg has the immediate consequence of losing the race and the phantom consequences in the future of losing all future races. And ergodicity is the study of these uh, phantom consequences. Or at least that's one of the interpretations that you can have uh, for ergodicity. That's, that's one of the, of the topics. No, I was just saying that, that this has a lot of uh, applications in investing. For example, you do not only want to know what's the expected return of an investment, but you also want to know if there are any chances of bankruptcy or liquidation or any form of um, barrier that causes you to forego future gains so that your real um, outcome is lower than the expected outcome. It has uh, applications in business. Uh, If your company doesn't survive then it doesn't matter what's the average profitability of the project. It has applications in careers. It has applications in romantic relationships um, and in personal lives and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, so uh, as you alluded to earlier, the, this sounds relatively obvious, I guess. It's I mean, of, of course, if you die on the first round of Russian roulette, the rest of the expected value doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't factor in at all. So how is it that economics has not made better use of this insight like where is it that we went wrong in building our mathematical models or our investment models and such that we've missed this relatively straightforward insight
2: yes so the answer is something called the ludic fallacy and uh nasim taleb talks about it uh in one of his books and that's uh, the idea is basically uh let's say that uh i flip a coin and a coin usually has a 50% chance of, um, of going tails and 50% chance of going heads, right, a normal coin. But Nassim Taleb, in his book, makes this example. Let's say that there is a coin that you flip and it flips 10 times heads. What are the possibilities that the 11th um, flip is also heads? And usually statisticians will say it's 50%. Because because coin flips are independent from each other. And what happened in the past doesn't influence what happened in the future. And that is true if you draw a little box of the problem and you make some assumptions. And then you only consider what happens inside these assumptions. And for example, you make the assumption that the coin is fair. But what happens in the real world is that coins might not be perfect. And if you have a coin that flips 10 times the same side, there is a considerable chance that that particular coin might not be correct. And so there is this, uh, call, this thing called the ludic fallacy. And the idea is that you approach reality as if it were a game and you have a set of rules and those rules are all that is. And with those rules, you can predict everything. And you don't consider what's outside of it. And so for example, is breaks one of these boundaries. So before I said, it it doesn't only consider the short-term consequences, but it breaks out of it and sees what the short-term consequences means in the long term. Uh, Another example I make, which is central to my book, uh, The control Heuristic, is that people, sometimes they engage into activities uh, that are riskier than it would be optimal. And that's because they are getting rewards that lie outside of these activities. I make an example. Let's say that you are commuting to work, and you always commute uh, through a country road. And of course, what you want to do is that you want to lose as much as little time as possible. So you want to drive as fast as possible in this road without having accidents. Right. So for a few months, you go back and forth, and then you set on an optimal speed, and you decide that the optimal speed for the trade-off between time and and uh, safety is uh, 70 kilometers per hour, for example. And then economists will tell you that once you decided that 70 kilometers per hour is what's optimal, then it's suboptimal or it's irrational to go faster than that, right? And then one day you see yourself and you are driving there at 80 kilometers per hour. And that would be irrational. By this definition but then maybe you're doing it because you're reaping rewards which lie outside of the activity at hand for example you're late for for a meeting and you know that if you're late your boss might fire you so that's the idea that in real life you cannot only consider what's inside the boundaries of a study but you need con- to consider everything and that's what people do, do intuitively So, for example, old old Peters, he explains that um, some paradigms of classical behavioral economy, such as prospect theory, the idea that people are risk-averse, they only make sense when you consider the activity within some uh, strict boundaries. So, for example, you go to some people, you give them a coin flip, you tell the people if it's heads uh, I give you $1,000. If it's uh, tails, you give me $150. And then when people tell you no, you tell them you're irrational because the expected value of this bet is positive. But then instead, uh, ergodicity economics breaks outside of these boundaries and considers what happens if you repeat um, the bet over time. And you discover that we humans, our brain, how it's wired and so on, considers that. And because the real life is made of repeated activities, repeated exposure to risk, then it makes sense to do that. Another example is that if the researcher comes to you and tells you, we make this bet, flip a coin. If it's, 1, 000, if it's heads, I give you 1,000 euros. If it's tails, you give me 950 euros. Uh, A real participant in real life will not accept this this bet because he will say, who's this guy? Why is he proposing me a bet in which I win? He must be a swindler. Yeah. So again, you're breaking outside of those boxes. And you see that a lot of economics, a lot of behavioral economics specifically, uh, they have these assumptions, these boxes, which restrict the time horizon, which restrict the risk horizon, which restricts... uh, the boundaries of what matters for people. For example, they assume that people, they don't care whether they look stupid or not. And, and they get to some consequences, which only make sense within these assumptions. But in real life, you don't have those assumptions. And when you break down these assumptions, you discover that a lot of classical economics doesn't make sense. And instead, ergodic economics and other, and other paradigms, they suddenly do make sense.
1: Do you feel the same way about behavioral economics?
2: Yes, uh, yes. you get a like, lot of examples, a lot of principles, lot of um, that only make sense in, restricti- in restricted uh, areas or in restricted... Uh, and, of course, that doesn't apply to everything. There are a lot of insights which are f- fully correct or fully apply everywhere. And then it doesn't ma- also mean that Something that only works within some boundaries is useless or wrong because you do have some circumstances in which you can control for those boundaries or which we can assume. It's just very important to know whether there are such boundaries and whether they represent the situations to which you're applying uh, whatever field or paradigm or
1: rule or principles you want. Right. I've, I've said before, and I think what you're laying out kind of corroborates this, that if if you keep your assumptions in view, and you don't go beyond those, or you amend them when you do, it's hard to get in too much trouble. So this this is true for investing or for interpreting the results of a you know study or an entire field of knowledge. As long as you know what they're assuming, and you make sure that when you try to apply those insights to another uh, situation, the assumptions still hold, it's hard to get in too much trouble. And and I just it seems to me that a lot of the conversations around trying to apply principles of economics or behavioral economics to indict everyone as being irrational or to suggest that they should accept this policy or another are guilty of committing this fallacy that you keep referencing the Ludic fallacy. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. And that if not used appropriately or interpreted appropriately, these, studies tend to make us if anything dumber like the, the more we read the further we come away from actually understanding how humans work or how economic systems work and so I, i've become more sympathetic to the claims of the computational rationality researchers are you familiar with this field
2: mm, not really
1: well so they they push back against a lot of behavioral economics and a lot of cognitive psychology Where you take these somewhat contrived situations, you put people in them, you observe their behavior and say, well, that's obviously ridiculous. They're not calculating the expected value. They should they should obviously take this bet, throwing away the fact that if any of us were approached on the street by somebody who said, I'll give you a thousand dollars if it comes up head and you give me nine fifty if it comes up tails, I would have the exact same response that you said you would have. Like, why is this person giving me a bet that I'm guaranteed when I would turn it down every time? Because that's just not a situation I want to be in, like something fishy is going on here. And so those assumptions don't hold. But I worry that national policy and the national conversation around how we're going to structure incentives or payouts or various other things just don't account for all that goes into a a person making their decisions. And so there's not a question there. It's really just more of a comment. Um, Computational rationality might be something worth looking into.
2: Yeah, thank you. And what you say is, is very true. Like there is this problem that like even if you think that you have, you know, the assumptions, then there is this game of broken form that goes on. For example, you make a study, you write down the, the assumptions, but then you don't write down the assumptions you in the abstract. And then someone else only reads the abstract and then takes the conclusion and then applies it somewhere else. So that's definitely a big risk as well.
1: So in the time that we have left, unfortunately, we've gotten to like 30% of the questions. So this is that that's a good sign. This conversation has taken many interesting detours. But I was hoping that you could outline a couple of ways that we could use anti-fragility, ergodicity, and the rest of your body of work to make ourselves more likely to be in the survivors at the end of the 10 ski races.
2: Yeah, so uh, some a very quick list of suggestions would be uh limit your exposure. So take very uh, many different uh, small independence bets. Redistribute. So what you see is that uh, if, for example, uh, you and your wife have two different investment strategies, and at the end of every year, you re- at least partially rebalance your two portfolios, you're going to be much more resistant than if you don't. Um, other ideas is uh, require skin in the game. So whenever you contract someone or you rely on the services of someone else, make sure that they have something to lose. If you also have something to lose, and if you if something goes wrong for you, and not only that, but also that uh, they get out of the game. So like they had, there is some way for people to know about those losses, so that those people they cannot play games in which having some dissatisfied customers is part of the game, let's say, and wins are larger than losses, because then you might be one of their like acceptable losses. You don't want that. Right. You want to be sure that they have some permanent and loss, if something goes wrong to you, that uh, prevents them from, um, from taking too much risk, for example. That's something that the scheme in the game. Some other suggestions for antifragility would be consider yourself not as a single identity, a single ego, uh, but as a multitude of mental patterns. Another uh, another idea is... uh, Look for leading indicators or adding the lagging, lagging indicators. So in your job, for example, if you're a freelancer, do not only look at how much revenue you made, but also look on whether your skills are good, whether you're building a larger and larger client list and so on, because otherwise you will plateau uh, very, very early. And uh, leading indicators allow you to discover problems before it's too late. If you only focus on lagging indicators, the moment you spot a problem,
1: it will already have hurt you.
2: Um, yeah, so j- this is just uh, a list of
1: ideas. No, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And where can people find you if they want to read your work or hire you for consulting?
2: Yeah, so uh, my website is Luca-Dellana, dot com. Uh, my books can be found uh, almost everywhere On Amazon, on Apple Store, on Google Store, on Barnes & Noble, and so on and so forth. And uh, yes, I'm also available for consulting. Uh, I work in Europe and in Asia. I spend a lot of time in Singapore, but I'm also available for, um, well, not usually I also travel around, not much now, but I also do a lot of Zoom consulting over the last
1: year. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was very stimulating.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. And I wish you the best moving forward. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Thank you
2: both.
0: Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.